Well, let's open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, for the final time, we're marching our way through a study of Romans 6 and uh, finishing today. We finished actually the exposition couple weeks ago, and we're going to summarize it today. What we've done as we're going through Romans is that's so theologically dense that it's easy to miss the forest for the trees and the trees sometimes for the forest. So at, at each uh, chapter break, we're pausing and going back and just making sure that we have a, a good running start before we keep going to understand exactly Paul's argument. It's re- important to remember when you're reading the Bible that uh, to remember that the way we have the Bible was really not exactly the form in which it was written. And what I mean by that is we have versification, we have verses and chapters, and we're very thankful for that. We can isolate where, where a section of Scripture is and all find ourselves uh, at the same time there together. But originally, these were letters. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome. And they basically got together and read the whole letter at one time. Sure, they would go back and study it. But you can imagine those early Romans, those Christians who were at the city of Rome, get this scroll, this this parchment, this letter from Paul, and they ripped it open, popped the seals, and began reading it from beginning to end. Then they would read it again, beginning to end. They would stop and ask questions. And I remind you of that to to remember that these chapter breaks that we have are merely conventions. They're helpful to find our place in a a book in the Bible, but they're not inspired. Chapter 6, get this, I went to seminary to get this. Chapter 6 is right after chapter 5. And chapter 6 is just before chapter, you're good. Which means that it's a piece of a puzzle. And anytime we pull out a verse, a passage, a chapter, we're really pulling out a section of of a bigger mosaic, a bigger puzzle. And we're looking at that piece, but it's also important to remember how that piece fits in the greater scheme of the great picture of that puzzle. That's where we've come today in Romans chapter 6. We've been studying it. We've exegeted it. Now we're going to come with a high altitude flyover and kind of pull it all together. A theological review of Romans chapter 6. I came across a list this week when doing some research. I, uh, I plugged into Google and, and, and I decided to let Google be my guide and say, how can I change? How can I change? I came on dozens and dozens of websites. They had lists and lists. One had 101 ways, 101 ways you can change your life today. Well, I have trouble with like two things. 101 is a little overwhelming. I did find one that, were, that um, isolated it down to nine. Nine ways to be a better person through self-development. Are you ready? Get your pen ready. Don't write this down. Number one, be willing to change. I like that. Number two, stop making excuses. I like that. Number three, stop being angry. How did he know I was angry? Number four, be a role model. Number five, forgive someone. Number six, listen to people. Seven, be honest. Number eight, do something you don't want to do. The illustration he gave after this is he didn't like roller coasters, so he figured if he, if he would ride a roller coaster, it would change him. Okay. And number nine, surprise someone special. Now, those are sweet little anecdotes. Those are nice little admonitions. They're really good little imperatives. But do you really think if you did all nine of those things, even today, that you'd wake up tomorrow morning a fundamentally different human being? There are some great suggestions on that list. But can such a list like that really change a person? Let me ask you another question. Are you, are you wanting to change anything in your life? Kind of take a step back. You look at your life. You take inventory. Is there anything that you would like to change in your life? I'm not talking about your height. I would love to change my height. I would love to be able to sing like Dan Loganbill. Those things are not going to happen. Until heaven, look for me. I'll be the tall tenor. I'm talking about your life, your character. Your personality, your decisions, your responses. 
Of course there are things you'd like to change. I hope that's one of the reasons that you're here week in and week out. My question, though, and the question that Paul raises is, are they the right things? Are you wanting to address and to change the right things in your life? For five chapters in the book of Romans, Paul has been explaining the need for people to be justified before God. Justified is a big word that means righteous. In fact, you see the word justified and the word righteous in the book of Romans. They come from the same Greek word. To be right before God is to be just before God. Is to be uh, uh, counted as holy and blameless. Remember chapter 1, he said all the Gentiles... They are in trouble with God. They have sinned and they have fallen short of God's glory. They cannot approach God with a clean slate. They are in trouble with God. And you can hear the Jews who say, ah, we have the law. We have the Torah. We have the blessing of God. We're God's chosen people. Listening to Paul hammer the Gentiles and say, yeah, those guys, they really need God. They really need some grace. Then in chapter 2, Paul says, oh, and by the way, if you're a Jew and listening to me hammer on the Gentiles' need for God... You need God too. You need God's grace because the law has never saved anyone. No one has ever obeyed God in the nuances of the 636 laws of the Old Testament in such a way that God elbowed the angels and said, wow, we've got a perfect person. Then in chapter 3, he says, lest anyone think they've escaped, all have fallen short. All have sinned. There's none righteous, not even how many? One. And then the last half of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, he says, let me tell you how a man, a woman, can be right before God. And it's shocking. It is counterintuitive. It is mind-blowing, mind-numbing because you have these Gentiles who think, well, I, didn't, I did all this wrong. I can't get rid of my sin. You got these Jews who think they did everything right that they could have done and, and they, they can't uh, add all that righteousness up to, to please God. And Paul says, no, you're all in trouble with God. So for a chapter and a half, in the last half of three and in chapter four, he says, here's the deal. Jesus Christ was the only righteous one to ever live. God expects perfection, absolute righteousness to enter into his presence. No one qualifies except Jesus. So Jesus died a death in our place as a substitute for those who believe and Jesus gives us, the big word is imputes, he accounts, he puts in our, our spiritual bank account, righteousness, perfection. And it covers our sin. And he proved it all by rising from the dead after being crucified on a cross. And then Paul makes this amazing assertion that, that still to this moment is hard for me to grasp. He says, all you have to do to go to heaven is believe that God, through his son, has made a way for you to go to heaven. It's that simple. Grace upon grace. Now, instantly, after explaining that for five chapters, the question is, well, what about sin? What about when I blow it? What, what, what about when I do things wrong, even though I've been captured by God's grace, even though I believe? In fact, if God's grace covers my sin and the covering of that sin extols and honors his grace, wouldn't it make sense that I could sin more and God's grace would be expounded even more? And he says, beginning in chapter six, verse one, may it never be. So in chapter 6, we have a major, major shift. Look down for a moment at verse 11. Verse 11 is one you should circle, highlight, star, whatever you want to do. This is an important verse because he says, even so, we'll come back to this in a moment. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Back to grammar school 101, English 10th grade grammar. Here we go. This is the first imperative in the book of Romans. You know what an imperative is? It's a command. 
It, it tells us something to do. An indicative makes a statement. An imperative makes a demand or a command. This is the first one in the book of Romans. Now, a little footnote. Some people say, well, the first half of Romans is all indicative. It's all, you know, uh, facts. It's theology. And the last half of Romans is all practical. Well, no one told Paul that. Because here you are in chapter 6, and he's telling us what to do. He's giving us an imperative. This is the turn. This is where everything shifts in the book of Romans. He's now saying, I've established the, the facts of justification. Now here's what you do about it. Here's the practical application at the end of that section on justification. He turns a corner in chapter 6. And he says, not only does the gospel change our standing before God if we believe it, but listen, the gospel changes us, period. It's impossible. Think about just the the profound nature of Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. It is impossible for the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, God the Father, to invade and capture and purchase a person's life and there be no change. It's impossible. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of what? Lawlessness. You didn't do what I said to do. You didn't apply the imperatives. You just thought it was grace, grace, all grace. And I don't have to do anything in response to that grace. Grace demands a response. The response doesn't get grace. The response is because of grace. Paul talks about sanctification for the next few chapters. Sanctification is a big word that simply means holiness. To be sanctified is to become holy. To be sanctified is to become more like God, more like his son, the Lord Jesus, who is absolute sanctification personified. And we've called this series aggressive about sanctification. And there's a reason for that. We even have a graphic with with some boxing gloves. If you're going to to do battle against your own flesh, if you're going to try to change, as Romans 6, 7, and 8 especially tell us we need to, Romans 12 picks up on and hammers even more. If you're going to pursue change, it is bloody, it's messy, it's painful, it hurts. This is the application and the explanation of what Jesus meant when he said, you must die to what? Yourself. Is there anything in dying to yourself that sounds friendly and happy and unpainful? No, it's hard. It's the process of becoming holy. It's the process of hating sin. It's the process of dealing with sin. It's the process of turning away from sin. How important is sanctification? We've mentioned it from Hebrews chapter 12 before. Pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which... No one will see the Lord. In other words, a believer who's not pursuing sanctification is, listen to this phrase, an unsaved believer. You say, what does that mean? An unsaved believer. James talks about that. There are those who believe facts about the gospel. They believe the Christmas story and the Easter story, but they have no living vital relationship with Jesus. They believe facts, but they were unsaved. John says they went out from us because they were not of us. It's possible to believe in Christmas stories and Easter stories and have high thoughts of Jesus and have no relationship with him. The distinguishing characteristic of one who has been bought and purchased by the blood of Christ is this incessant fight against sin. That's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are going to highlight. Listen, change is hard. It's really hard. It's painful. But change is the natural state of a Christian. We're constantly trying to change. We'll come back to that more specifically in Paul's own experience with the efforts to change at the end of Romans 7, where he says, there's things I want to do I don't do. There's things I do I don't want to do. Have you ever experienced that? As I said, Jesus is far too powerful to come into a person's life and there be no change. Now, footnote, we're not talking about perfection, but progression. 
No one's going to change absolutely. That's called heaven. But the awareness that we need to change and the, the hatred of the inability to change fast enough, those are distinguishing characteristics and marks of a person who's been bought by Jesus' blood. So let's talk about this a little bit in, in, in a high altitude sense. Well, I want to talk to you about two essential components of aggressive sanctification. I'm going to break the whole chapter down into two essential components of aggressive sanctification. The first is in um, verses 1 to 10. It's a set of facts you need to know. If you're going to change, it's based on a set of facts that you have uh, not only learn, but you know, and they mean something to you, and you understand how they apply. A set of facts you need to know. He begins talking about this in verses 1 to 3 by highlighting that you have been crucified with Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. This is an odd thing. Now, now these are familiar terms to us. But imagine saying to someone, you have died with someone who else, else who's died. It just, it's an odd way of phrasing something. Look at what Paul says. What shall we say then? This is at the end of chapter 5 where he says, uh, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more in verse 20. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? What a question to ask yourself day in and day out. If I've died to sin, how can I still live in sin? Then he says, do you not know? It's a major important phrase that's used all throughout the, uh, the chapter uh, that we're studying in Romans 6. And also throughout the book. Don't you know? Do you not know? These are things you ought to be aware of. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? This is not talking about baptismal regeneration where you're saved because you're dunked. He's basically equating, if you're, in that day there was no, no such thing as an unbaptized believer. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Whatever he said to that guy in, in Acts chapter 8 about getting saved, it included the fact that he needed to be baptized. Because what's the response of the guy? Hey, there's some water. Can I be baptized now? Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism was simply a way that they showed the world they were now belonger, belonging to Christ. If you've been saved or baptized as a synonym into Christ, you've been baptized into his death. Meaning, we've been identified with Christ's death. His death has significant meaning in our response to sin. He died for us. He died as our substitute. He died as the penalty for our sin. We should have died by faith with him to our sin as well. We've been crucified with Christ. That fact ought to be something we understand and preach to ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves. It's not something we believe and then walk away from. We should have the cross on our minds all the time. Never moving away from that precious, horrific instrument of our Savior's death. He died for us that we would die to our sin. Secondly, we have another fact that's incorporated is we've been raised with Christ. Another fact we need to know. We have been raised with Christ. Therefore, having been buried with him, he's using this analogy, having been buried with him through baptism into death. That baptism, remember, is just code word for our salvation, not, not the means of our salvation. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. There it is. Underline it and highlight it. You and I have been saved that we would change, that we would walk in newness of life, that we are different than we were before. Christ comes into a life and rearranges Everything. It's impossible for him to be abiding with us, indwelling us, and not have a massive shift in everything we think and do. 
We walk in newness of life. Behold, old things have passed away and what? All things are new. Four, verse five, if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What he's saying here is the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power we can access to fight our sin. No one can ever say, well, this is the way I am. No one can ever say, well, this is the genes I got from my parents. No one can ever say, well, I was born this way and I can't have any choice about how I act or what I decide. The power of the resurrection is applied to the power of change in a believer's life. That's going to come back in a different image in the end of the chapter as a slave or a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? I mean, really, do you, do you believe that? Because if he was, that changes everything. If God can, if God has raised the dead, the greatest threat, the greatest fear we all have to die, if that's conquered, don't you think he can make you stop coveting or lusting or envying or gossiping or slandering or criticizing or you feel on the sin? Of course he can. Can't blame the devil can't blame our parents, can't blame our past. We have the power, resurrection power, to say no to sin and temptation. Also, you're different than you were before salvation. It's another fact you just gotta gotta grasp. You are different than you were before salvation. Things have changed. Look at what he says, verse six. Again, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The person you were before you believed in Christ is dead. Problem is, That person tends to have his own kind of resurrection day in and day out, doesn't he? Doesn't she? For he who has died is freed from sin. Wow, what a statement. You don't have to sin. You will, and I will. John says, the the one who says that that you have no sin, you make God to be a a liar. Of course you're going to sin. If If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But it's a progression. It's a deepening hatred toward that sin. Why? Verse 7 says, we've been freed from sin. You don't have to do that thing that you hate doing. Or think that thought that you hate thinking. There is resurrection power to conquer it. To wrestle with it. To deal with it. Now, if we have died with Christ, verse 8 says, we believe that he sh- we shall also live with him. There is the key. It's not about behavior modification. It's not about doing things uh, better or trying harder, being more good. It's about walking with him. Why? Because he's alive. He's resurrected from the dead. He is abiding with us. How different would it be if Jesus Christ materialized in front of you in the moment of choosing whether or not you were going to sin? How much of a difference would that make? We live with him. We live with him, verse 8 says. Knowing, here's our word knowing again, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead himself, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him for death that he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is the application of imputation. Christ died for us. He took our death and sin away before God. Christ died to give us life so that we can live for him. It's just, it's remarkable. I just can't get over the fact that even though I still sin, even though I confess my sin, even though I'm, I'm mad at myself a lot of the time, we have a Savior who died for that. 
My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. Then what does it say? And I, I bear it no more, praise the Lord on my soul. Is that a glorious thought? Is that a, is that a glorious thought to you? You're different than you were before salvation. Are you really acting that way? Are you acting like who God's called you and I to be? You're different than you were before salvation. Do you believe those facts? You've been crucified with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You're different than you were before, so act like it. Facts translate into righteous living. A second essential component of aggressive sanctification is this. It's a series of choices you have to make. Now we come to the great imperative. The choices you have to make. It's a series of choices. It's a series because you don't decide something one time and it goes away. Is there a sin that you've wrestled with since you were a believer and you just it's just difficult to to get a any traction on? It's a it's a thought, it's a deed, it's a habit, it's a lifestyle. It's a series of choices. Don't you wish you could say, okay, today I'm going to decide that I will never envy again. Whew, glad that part of my sanctification is done. Now I'll move on to other things. Doesn't work that way. It's a series. So here's some questions he, really, he basically asks us. Are you going to think as a believer or an unbeliever? Are you going to think as a believer or as an unbeliever? This is that great imperative in verse 11. Even so, because of these facts that he's he's taught us, because of these facts, consider, there's the imperative, there's the command, reckon, consider, assess yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, the longer I study the book of Romans and the deeper we get into this this, uh, study, I, I am more and more convinced that... Verse 11 might be one of the most important statements in the whole Bible. It's impossible to overstate the importance of this first command, this first imperative. Consider yourselves, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider or reckon is the key to making that choice not to sin. It means simply this, stop and think. Push pause before a sinful thought becomes a lust or desire. We have the ability as Christians to stop this pursuit of sin, to stop and think, wait, 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 wait. I have a choice to make. I have a decision to be made. It means having a strategy for aggressive sanctification. If I could sit my sons down, if you and I could sit down over a coffee and talk about this simple strategy, what's the way to apply Romans chapter 1 verses uh, all the way through the middle part of chapter 6, chapter 10 and verse 6? How can you apply that? Verse 11 says, stop and think. You know what your flesh does? You know what the enemy does? You know what Satan does? He wants to get your passions, your emotions, your lusts, your, your, your thinking involved towards sin so that you don't stop to reckon or consider yourself. The time to apply this verse is the second, the instant that you feel your heart leaning towards sin. It's to stop and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to consider myself. I need to reckon myself. I need to think about the reality that I don't have to do this, that I am dead to this sin. You want to know why you sin? Because you stop thinking. You want to know why I sin? You want to know the reason that I, I sin in mind and in body every single time is I haven't pushed pause to think about the reality of verse 11. Look over for a second at verse uh, chapter 13. We're going to get here in a few sermons. <laughs> Romans chapter 13. It's, 
I, I can't wait to get this. We're, we may do a series just on this verse. Put on chapter 13, verse 14. Last verse of chapter 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no, the Greek word is strategon, strategy, provision, plan. Make no plan or provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. There's a lot in there. That tells us that when we sin, when we give application to our lusts, our strong desires, our strong sinful desires, we have carefully planned to elbow the Holy Spirit to the side, to put God's word in the back of our mind. We've made a strategy on how we can sin. We have purposefully had a strategy to displease God. Isn't that amazing? Now, now what's the answer to that? Come back to verse 11 of chapter 6. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the last part of verse 11. Consider yourself to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? You're thinking as a believer, not an unbeliever. You're thinking as someone who is bought and owned by the precious Lord Jesus Christ. That he matters. If I could... Boil everything I ever wanted to preach down to one simple statement or sermon, it would be this. Jesus Christ matters in everything. It's not just changing behaviors. Mormons can do that. Jehovah's Witnesses can do that. I can do that with my dog. Behavioral change is pretty easy. Heart change is impossible. Without the Spirit of God. How do you, how do you access, that, access that impossibility? By applying the power of resurrection hope in the moment of sin by thinking about the reality that we are, look at the verse, alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a good healthy dose of omniscience, omnipresence of God. Seeing that God is there, he knows, he cares, it matters. That you're alive to God. This is not who I am. Does those, do those sanctifying thoughts control your language? Your liberties? Your decisions? Your parenting? I, I just came to a place this last week and I was realizing, you know, I, I think anger is a sin... Unless it's me being angry at what I think is wrong. And somehow I've justified my my life to say, that's right. Of course, that kind of anger is right because it's me and I'm right. Just, it's not how it works at all. Do not let sin reign, verse 12, in your mortal body. Why? Because you have considered yourself dead to it. Listen, folks. The enemy is whispering distractions in your mind every time you want to pause to think about acting rightly and thinking rightly. He wants to distract us. Our flesh is naturally distracting. Are you going to think as a believer who's alive to God in Christ or think as an unbeliever? Another question, are you going to yield to sin or to righteousness? Are you going to yield, submit to, lean into sin or righteousness? Verse 12, therefore, because we've considered ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. He gets really specific here. He talks about the physical flesh. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its strong desires, its epithemia, its lusts. Now, we typically think about this in, in, in terms of sexual lust. That's certainly in play here. But it's more than that. It's any desire that leads you away from God and his values, God and his standards. Then he gets very graphic, frankly, in verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body, that's your body parts, to sin as instruments or tools of unrighteousness. We have a modern uh, 
challenge theologically in our, in our day where people are calling that for this free grace movement, this free grace sanctification, which says you just think about the cross long enough and you, and you won't sin anymore. Well, I want to think about the cross. But eventually you have to say no to your flesh. Not presenting yourself, your body, as instruments of unrighteousness. The, the implications of this are so broad. I, I'm tempted to talk about a lot of applications of it. But it's, it's really easy to sound legalistic. I mean, are we lending our eyes as instruments of unrighteousness in our entertainment? Our ears when we hear jokes that don't, don't please the Lord? Our feet, our hands. Are we lending ourselves to tools as tools of unrighteous thinking and living? If you go through this passage, there's always the negative and the positive. Paul never just says, don't, 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 without saying, do. But present yourselves. Everyone is going to be presenting themselves to one concept or, uh, or another or one um, person or another, either God or yourself. Present yourselves, offer yourselves, same word as an offering. Offer yourself to God as those alive from the dead. We just learned that in verse 11. And your body parts, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You are the master over your life, your mind, your body with respect to presenting it to God or presenting it to the devil. How aggressive are we? Waking up in the morning and saying, this This is yours today, Lord. I want to present it to you to use as you want to. Because it's not just for his glory. It's always for our good. It's always for our good. What are you yielding to? Sin or righteousness? Do you you find yourself saying, well, I I can't help it. That's just the way I am. You're right. And resurrection power can overcome that. Third question. Who or what will take the position of your Lord, your master? Now say who or what, because he talks about God here, and he talks about a principle, an element that's already formed in your nature. Who or what will take the position of your master? For sin shall not be the Lord or master over you. He personifies sin. He basically says sin is a person for the, uh, for the point of this argument. It's, it's someone you obey, something you obey. Sin shall not be the Lord or master over you. Why? For you're not under law, but under grace. Sin is actually accented by the law because the law tells us what we've done wrong. Look how it goes on to explain this. What then, verse 15? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. He rephrases what he said back in chapter 6, verse 1. Just because you've been forgiven doesn't mean you should go out and sin more. Do you not know? Here we are again, verse 16. Do you not know that when you offer, you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience you are slaves either of the one you obey of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness he backs up and he he says there's a cause and effect you are defined i am defined by who we obey either our lusts or the devil or god and his righteousness tell me what you obey and i'll tell you who your master is But thanks be to God, verse 17 says, that though you, what's the the tense of this verb? Past tense, were. You were slaves of sin. You became, see the change? You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. This talks about obedience that comes out of your heart. It's not I'm standing up on the outside, sitting down on the inside. It's something you want to do. It's attitudinal. It deals with your heart. It deals with the leanings of your affections. And also says to that form of teaching to which you were committed, it's a book. God didn't give us a video. God didn't give us a 
a, 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 a discipleship guy, guru out in the desert we go spend time with. He gave us a book. You were committed to that form of teaching. He revealed himself in the pages of scripture. And having been, here's, we're back to all those facts again, freed from sin, you became right, slaves of righteousness. See those words become, you became, you became obedient from the heart, you became a slave of righteousness. Christians change from their old lifestyles. Very obvious, it's very simple. Perfectly, no, not perfectly. But in progress, Yes. Then he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Just as you, he's saying, I'm, 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 I'm going back to elementary uh, um, uh, education here by saying, everyone knows what a slave is. Remember, up to 70% of the culture was slaves during the, this time. So he's saying, I'm reaching for an illustration everyone knows. I'm going back to illustration 101. Everyone understood slavery. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I'm using an illustration. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Wow, what an amazing tidal wave and tsunami there is here. He's basically saying, sin leads to more sin, leads to more sin, leads to more sin. Wrong thinking leads to worse thinking and worse thinking. But obeying Christ leads to more obedience. Least the deeper levels of grace and understanding God. Sometimes I feel like we sin is like falling into a pool with our clothes on, and you think, "Well, I've already fallen in, so I might as well swim. I'm already wet." No, no. Stop. Reckon. Consider. Think. Push. Pause. Go the other direction. That's the point of this chapter. Because presenting your, yourself, your body, as members and slaves to righteousness, look at the end of verse 19, results in sanctification, results in holiness. It's, it's, it's momentum. Now, just a side note, this is why we do care groups. This is why we have discipleship. It's so we can help each other with this. It's to give momentum to one another and not just come in, sit in a building, listen to a speech about God and leave. That's not church. That's not the intention of sanctification. It's something that you do with each other and for each other and about each other. It's about correcting and encouraging. For when you were, verse 20, slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What he's saying is you you didn't have the ability to do righteous things and righteous thoughts and righteous deeds because you were a slave to sin. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? It's a great word. Hey, that sinful lifestyle, how'd that work out for you? Were you happy? Did you get everything you wanted? Did it bring you satisfaction? For the outcome of those things is death. But, now it flips it over, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in holiness and sanctification and the outcome here it is eternal life what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul do you understand pursuing sin leads to death do you know what's on the other side of pursuing righteousness eternal life heaven does heaven motivate you now, again, I, you hear Paul and you understand the, the balance that you want to strike here. He, he, he'll get this in chapter 8. It's not that if you do sinful things, you necessarily go to hell. If you do nice things, you go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about gaining momentum and traction and becoming holy, becoming sanctified. But if you find yourself, Paul is saying, if you find yourself on the path of sin... Uh, you, you know what sin that is. You know what the, the besetting sin that you wrestle with. I know the series of besetting sins I wrestle with. If that's the, the path, the trajectory of your life, and there is no sense of sorrow and fight and grief over that, that's going to end in death. 
But if you know the fight for sanctification and for holiness, you hate the things that you do that are wrong. You hate the facts that you don't do the things that are right. That results in eternal life. Heaven is real. Hell is equally as real. Paul says, step back and think of the end. When you push pause in verse 11 and you say, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Think about where this all goes. Think about the end. Thinking about this yesterday, driving back from Louisville, that if this is true, and, and I mean that tongue in cheek, since this is true, if heaven is real, what a motivation that is. But you know what? If hell is real, if this death is real, what a motivation that is to talk to the people around us about these realities. He summarizes all of chapter six in verse 23. The wages, that's what you work for. The wages of sin is death, hell. Death in this life, soul decay, unsatisfied living, dissatisfaction with everything that you pursue. Ultimately, the eternal death in hell. The wages of sin is death. That's what you get. But the free gift, you don't work for it. The free gift, this is back to grace in chapter five. The free gift of God is heaven, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it amazing? He comes back again and says it's in Christ Jesus. It's not just about living forever in a nice place. It's about living forever with him. Practical implications of this. Can I give you a few? Based on Romans 6, will you pray? This is a dangerous, dangerous admonition. Are you willing to pray that God makes you more aware of your sinful attitudes and behaviors? That's part of reckoning yourself, considering yourself dead to sin. Will you pray? Are you willing to pray that God turns on the light and opens your eyes to see things about your life that are ugly to him? God loves to answer that prayer, but are you willing to pray it? Secondly, are you willing to involve other believers in your aggressive sanctification? Are you easy to confront? Are you easy for someone to correct, to come up and say, I know you want to be holy, but you're not being holy like this or like that. And what you've done by saying that is you've gone against what you are. Are you correctable? That's why we have small groups, care groups, discipleship, leveraging spiritual relationships for spiritual growth. That's what we do. We leverage spiritual relationships for spiritual growth. Thirdly, are you willing to read the Bible knowing that the target is you? You ever read the Bible and you think, boy, so-and-so needs to read this. this a, I should email them that verse right now. God has this for them. And he's got me as the messenger for them. Are you, really, are you willing to read the Bible and say, God, I am the target of your arrow? And fourthly, are you willing to take your life and growth seriously? Don't listen to your heart when it tells you that sin is not as bad as sin really is. Why? Because sin is worse than suffering. Sin is worse than affliction. Sin is worse than death. Sin is worse than the devil. Sin is worse than discomfort. Have you learned to hate sin? For the next three chapters, that's going to be exactly what Paul instructs us, two chapters, what Paul's going to instruct us about. Do you hate sin? I don't want to talk about all the sin you see on CNN and Fox News. Do you hate the sin that's here? Do you see, recognize, are you aware of your own sin for which God in flesh died? Do you hate your sin or are you, or are you an expert in other people's sin and the hatred of that? having an email exchange 
in recent weeks with a guy. I won't tell you too much about the details. But he's very concerned about another guy's sin, or at least what he perceives as sin. And he is pounding it, and he's pounding me about dealing with this. And, and, and what's grievous about this gentleman is that he doesn't go to our church, by the way, is that he is um, he's unwilling to look at his own sin. And I found myself, what I thought was getting righteously angry at his ugliness at being concerned about someone else's sin and not, not his own. Until I began to think of how concerned I was about this man's sin and not my anger at his sin. I tell you, you start praying that you're aware of sin, you just better buckle up. God answers that prayer way quicker than the one for the Lamborghini, Right? Listen, God has your good in focus by, by telling you to fight sin. It's for your good. It's for his glory, yes, but it's for your good. That is Romans 6. Now we get into the fight in Romans 7, and I got to tell you, I am reaching for Romans 8. Uh, someone asked me, how long is it going to take you to get through Romans 8? And I said, till we finish Romans 8. Uh, it's probably the Mount Everest in the Himalayas of the Bible. You pray with me? As you bow your heads, uh, this may be foreign territory for some of you. You just don't understand this stuff. Uh, Jesus Christ died for the sins of those who believe. Will you believe? If you haven't believed, great morning to come and talk to someone about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, giving your life to him, becoming a Christian Becoming someone different because of him, not because of your own efforts. Our prayer room is going to be open to my right. We have some men and women who are the, just the, the, their heart's desire is to help you know where you stand before the Savior. Don't leave. Lunch is not that important. You'll have lunch again tomorrow. Don't leave without dealing with the issues of your soul. If we can talk to you about church membership, anything that we can do to serve you, just to pray with you about a burden that you're carrying, let us serve you in some way. You can find your way to the prayer room. Father, now dismiss us with the hopeful reality that we have been given power to say no to sin. We've been given enablement to present our members as instruments of righteousness. Change us, Lord. Change us by the power of your spirit. And Lord, change this, change us in coordination with our own aggressive pursuit of holiness. We want to be like your son because we love him. We're alive in him. We're alive because of him. Change us as individuals and change us as a church. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen.